0: Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. We're about to read that in just a moment. Um, i tell you this. This is uh I'm about to I get to preach right now, I get to preach Jesus to you. This is awesome. This is uh absolutely an honor. In fact, I'll tell you something, just kind of before we get started here. And this is something that I'll, I'll start up to this week, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, you don't have to foot there, but if you look at verse 4, it says there's a there's a God. Of this age, it's not, it's not talking about the God, big G God, little G God of this age, that blinds the mind. That's verse 4. And you got verse 5, and then you got verse 6, and it says that that, that God, big G God, just shines just in the light of Christ. So you see this like warfare going on. So verse 4, you got the God of this world, this blinding eyes to the gospel. And in verse 6, you got the God of the universe that's just shining the light of the gospel into, the, into people. And then right in the middle of that in verse 4, so that's this cosmic warfare, and what's our role? And it says, we don't preach ourselves, verse 5. It says 4, 6, and then verse 5 says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus. We preach Christ. So right in the middle of this this cosmic warfare, what's going down is a preaching of Christ and God just shining light in people's hearts. I'm just thankful I get to preach Christ to you right now. So this is uh, Mark 2. Let's read verse thirteen through seventeen, and then we'll pray. Okay. I want you to notice as we read verse thirteen through seventeen, and if you don't know this, here we're right in the middle of a study on Mark right now, or not in the middle, but we're rolling through Mark right now. That's why we're in this passage. Verse thirteen. See if you can pick out the plain sense, and also the the primary intentions. Why is this in this? Why is this passage in Mark? Why does Mark want you to know this? Verse thirteen. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat down together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to dig into this part of your word God, your word is, is glorious and awesome. And God, we just want to come under the authority of your word. God, you, you Lord Jesus, are glorious and awesome. And I just pray as we read these things now that you, you would open our eyes to your greatness. Help us to see you, Lord. God, I pray for every person in here that as, as, as your word is unfolded, God, I just pray that you would give every person here just, just moments throughout this time, Lord, of worship in their soul because you, Lord Jesus, are so great. God, I pray you'd bring conviction where convictions do. God, I pray you challenge us. You would move us to obey you. Help us, Lord. Help us during this time. Let this time bring you glory. God, please empower me by your spirit to preach your word and the ability that you supply. Thank you, Lord, for your help. Send your name we pray. Amen. Let me move this back a little bit. All right. Okay. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through uh, 17. So let's, let's talk about the plain sense for a minute. What's the plain sense of this passage? Just what does it mean? Okay. So you've got the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. And in the first 12 verses, which Dustin taught on last week, it's going to show us that Christ Jesus has all the authority to forgive sin. He shows you very clearly that he's God in the first 12 verses. And then you get right here, and in verse 13, you got Jesus in his normal round, And he's out by the sea, and he's teaching the multitudes. He's just he's preaching the gospel to the multitudes. Can you imagine it? The multitudes are amazed. The multitudes, all through the scriptures, when you see the multitude's reaction to his preaching, and they're amazed. They're awestruck. He didn't preach like the scribes preach. And that's what we're seeing right here in verse 13. And then you get to verse 14. And you've got uh, that he's teaching the multitudes. And then it comes into a time where he sees an individual named Levi. And he calls him and he says, follow me. And Levi just leaves all and follows Jesus right in that moment. And then right after that, next thing you know. So he calls Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. He follows him. And then the next thing you know, Jesus is in Levi's house with other tax collectors and sinners. So imagine all these tax collectors, sinners, sinful people in in this house and jesus is calling them to repentance he's just calling them to repentance uh then the religious people okay the religious folks they see what's going on jesus is right in the middle of these tax collectors and sinners what's he doing and the religious people when they see that they go to they don't go to jesus but they go to Jesus' disciples and they say why is your teacher eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners And I don't know what the disciples would have said in that moment, but I love this. Before they have a chance to respond, Jesus interjects, and he gives them his response. And his response is, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And this is what happened. This is the plain sense of this passage. Are you with it? All right, let's talk for a second before we get into uh, some details here. Primary intentions of this passage or what? What are some primary reasons this is here? And I'll give you a few things. One is to exalt Jesus. Now you're thinking, well, that's obvious, right? That's exalt Jesus, the purpose of the whole book and the whole Bible and of your life. So, but I'm telling you, that's a big thing to see here to exalt exalt Jesus. So I want to encourage you while we're doing this, this is, this is a time, you know, you may have heard people say this before. This is a time of worship. You ever heard that? That we don't just worship Him in song and then, okay, it's time to stop worshiping Jesus and now let's hear this guy talk for a little while. That's not the case. Preaching of the Word of God, this is a time to worship. So I encourage you to ask God while we're going through this, ask Him to exalt Jesus in your soul. You know those moments. Those moments of clarity you have when you're reading the Word of God or you're hearing the Word of God preached and those moments of clarity that make Jesus look good in in your heart because He is good. So pray for those things. Pray that Jesus will be exalted. Jesus is exalted in this passage Is the famous one that multitudes are gathered around to hear and they're amazed at this man's preaching. He's exalted as the friend of sinners. Religious God-fearing folk, they don't, they don't associate with sinners, right? But Jesus does. Jesus comes right here. He's called the friend of sinners in, in Matthew chapter 11. And this is what He's shown to be in this passage. Jesus is exalted as the great physician. These people are sick and they're dying and Jesus comes in as the divine doctor, the only one that can cure their soul. He's exalted in this way. So primary intent, exalt Jesus in this passage. Let me give you a second uh, high up intention of this passage. This passage is meant to show you who Jesus forgives. The first 12 verses, which Dustin taught, shows you that Jesus has divine authority to forgive sins. That He can forgive. And then right here we see who He forgives. He doesn't forgive self-righteous Pharisees. People that think they're good and have no need of a doctor. But He does come to forgive sinners and tax collectors. So we see who He forgives. And number three, this passage is meant to make a clear contrast between Jesus and the hypocritical religious leaders of His time. Okay, so we're supposed to see a real clear distinction between here's Jesus. Okay, here, here he is. And then here's the hypocritical religious leaders of his time. Here, look at the difference. And the reason why I say that is because when you look at this passage from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 6, it's a longer passage. Everything that's around the passage that we're in. 2, 1 to 3, 6, it's five stories. And every story, what's getting introduced to you is the enemies of Christ. The the opposition to Jesus. So a story is given and then there's this little question that pops up that just questions Jesus and who he is. And then another story and then a question. And then another story then a question. Just questioning Jesus and who he is. And so the idea of this section is to show you that Christ is not like them. He's not like these these hypocrites. And particularly in our section that we're in, these religious hypocrites, they, they don't want to be. They will not uh, associate with sinners and tax collectors. And this passage right here shows that Jesus ain't like them. He's not like them. He's a friend of sinners. Now, let's, uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to kind of, we didn't go through this off of three headings. Pretty much three headings we're going to go through this passage. Heading number one is going to be the publican and his obsession. Now, publican there is the old King James word for tax collector. But I put publican because it starts with a P and this is alliterated because I just spent time with David Platt for about a week. So it's not just him, but this, this group. So anyway, so forgive me for the alliteration, but the publican and his obsession. The second heading will be the Pharisees and their objection. And then the third one will be the physician and his objective. OK, so that's where we're headed. So let's start with the publican or the tax collector the tax collector and his obsession. We're going to read verse 13 through 15 again. Pick it out here. Listen, look at this tax collector and what is he obsessed with? Then he went out again by the sea and all the multitude came to him and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Okay. Levi the tax collector. Okay, so who is this tax collector? His name's Levi right here. He is also Matthew, same guy. If you read the same account in Matthew chapter 9, it's the exact same story in Matthew chapter 9. It's that he's actually Levi is called Matthew in that section. And Matthew actually wrote that section, so I think he knows his own name, okay? So Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. He's a Jewish tax collector. You know this because his name is Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob or one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's, he's a Jewish tax collector and we find him right here in this passage. It says he's in the tax office or ESP says he's in the tax booth. He's in the place where he collects taxes, okay? So here's this Jewish tax collector. Now, the way this worked historically the way you know it's not done the same way obviously it is today but the way it worked historically is tax collectors the the Roman government would have a certain amount that they want to pull out as far as taxes are concerned out of uh, these different areas right now the way somebody would become a collector of those taxes for the Roman government is they would make a bid it was like a franchise okay so like they would go and say "Well, well you know this is the amount the Roman government wants we'll get you this much out of the people and after these bids are made what would happen is the Roman government would more than likely take a reasonable or uh, or the highest bidder and they'd say, okay, that's the tax collector. And what would happen is the tax collector would take the taxes, he would give them to the Roman government, and then anything else that he got that exceeded that, he gets to keep it. Now, you see how this could get corrupt really, really fast? And it did get very, very... Corrupt. And that's the reason why in Luke chapter 3, when the tax collectors come to John the Baptist and they say, hey, um, what can, you know, we, he, he's preaching repentance and they want to repent. They say, what must we do? And John the Baptist tells the tax collectors, collect no more than what is appointed for you because that's exactly what they were doing. It became very, very corrupt. Tax collectors were a very wicked group of people. It was a lucrative employment that they had, but because of corruption, some of the most despicable sinners were tax collectors. And this is the reputation that they had. If you, if you were a Jew, okay, and you knew a tax collector of any kind, you would more than likely you would hate this person, okay? You would be a Jewish person and you would look at this tax collector and it did not matter what background they were from, Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter, and they would have a bad reputation in your mind. But if they are a Jewish tax collector, like Levi is, it was even worse. They really had a bad reputation. The way it would be seen is it's like, you, okay, you're my, Jew, you're my Jewish brother and you have sold yourself to the Roman government. That's what you've done. You just sold your soul to them. And now you're cheating me out of my money, your own countrymen, in order so, that, so that you can get rich. And so Jewish tax collectors in the eyes of a Jew were despised. They hated these people. Um, they, in fact, it was so bad that if you were a Jewish tax collector like Levi, you would have to pretty much give up your Jewish identity. You wouldn't even be able to, to go worship in the synagogue. You couldn't even do that. These men were seen as very wicked, as the scum of the earth, and for the most part, it was true. For the most part, it was actually true. They were usually thieves, but the difference is these tax collectors were thieves with clout. They had power. They had the Roman government backing them as they steal your stuff, okay? So these people were thieves. Now, Jesus' language, the the language that Jesus uses about tax collectors makes it clear that it's not that these people were just seen as as evil, but they really were. For the most part, they really were. Okay, listen to Jesus' language. Matthew 18, 17, Jesus says this. If he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. You see Jesus' language? Just let him be like a tax collector to you. Okay? Jesus knew that these people were normally very wicked. Or what about Matthew 4, 46? He says, if you love those, this is Jesus speaking, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same? So he said, even tax collectors do that. So you see the way Jesus thinks? Even Jesus understands that these people, he knows that these people are wicked. It's not just that they were seen that way in the public eye, but they really were evil, wicked people. In the eyes of the religious folks, The religious people, how did they view them? Well, we just read in our passage, right? What did they say to Jesus? Why why is he eating with these kind of people? Why is he eating with tax collectors? Why is he eating with tax collectors? See, they would would not associate with this sort of people. And that's the way the religious world viewed them. And this hatred, the hatred that that was coming at tax collectors, all it did was exasperate their, their evil, their wickedness. All it did was harden their hearts. And Levi is one of these men. Levi is one of these people, okay? Now, did Levi have any prior exposure to Jesus before this situation? And we don't know for sure if he did. We do know that Jesus was in the place where he's collecting taxes. And Jesus was, he pretty much eradicated uh, sickness and disease and demon possession in that place. If you read earlier in Mark. So Jesus has done some miraculous things in the place where Levi lives, it's very likely that he knew, at least knew of Jesus, maybe saw his miracles, maybe heard him preach. Okay? But it's very likely that he did. Now, we don't know this for sure, but uh, the scripture is clear that when John the Baptist was coming prior to Jesus, John the Baptist actually baptized. He preached to many tax collectors and those tax collectors believed him and he baptized them. For example, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 29, says when all the people... When all the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. So there's tax collectors baptized with the baptism of John. So maybe he was one of those. We don't know, but he sure did. When Jesus said, follow me, he sure did drop it quick and go after Christ. Okay. So this is where we're at now. What was Levi's obsession? We've got the We got uh, the publican and his obsession. What was Levi's obsession? It was Jesus, right? He was obsessed with Christ. Now, why do I say that? Well, verse 13, we've got Jesus preaching to the multitudes. And then when you get to verse 14, I'm going to read 14 again. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And Jesus says to Levi, follow me. And what does Levi do? He arose and followed him. He was obsessed with Jesus. He arose, he followed him, and then right after that, he throws a party for Jesus and invites all his lost friends. Okay, so this is what we have going on here. Now, just to dig a little bit deeper here, the command that Jesus gives in verse 14 is follow me. Follow me. This is a very important command for all of us, for all of us to obey. And it's a very important command for Levi. Now, this is the command. This is the the most repeated phrase that Jesus threw out there. The most repeated command, follow me, follow me. He said it more than he said said any other thing as far as repetition goes. So this is very important. I I preached on this a few weeks ago back in chapter 1, verse 17. So I won't say much, but I will say this. When you hear follow me, there's a negative aspect and a positive aspect to you obeying that. Follow me. The negative aspect in following Jesus is to leave all, forsake all. It's total abandonment to follow Jesus. Leave all. And that's exactly what Levi does here. And if you read the other accounts and other gospels, it literally says he left all, rose up and followed him. He left all, rose up and followed him. We are still called to this today. So it should make you ask the question, what could possibly, what could possibly be so precious that you would not leave this precious thing not to go after Christ? What could possibly be so precious? And the, and the answer is obvious. Nothing. Nothing is as great as a no, no one is as great as the Lord Jesus. No one like him. There's no one like him. Listen to Mark ten twenty eight. Jesus' disciples come to him and they say this. We have left all and followed you. So that's the way the disciples say it. We left all and followed you, Jesus. And here's Jesus' response in Mark ten twenty eight. Jesus Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and for the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands of persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Left all and follow Jesus. Okay? Now, there is nothing, I'll say it again, there is nothing. If you have anything in your mind that's precious, there is nothing like, there is no one like him. No one. So there's nothing that should keep you from forsaking all else, total abandonment, to follow Jesus. And so let me, when I say that, when I hear, when I hear Jesus say, say to him, follow me, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying make God, make Jesus the first priority in your life. Don't hear me saying that. That's too weak, I feel like, okay? It's just too weak. I don't mean that thing you heard as a kid like, you know, God's number one, the family's number two, and education's number three. Anybody heard that as a kid? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that if anything, there's nothing ever that should creep up in its value in your heart next to Christ. Not even close. We're talking about total abandonment to the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, follow me. And it's all over the Bible. Now, uh, the positive aspect, obviously, was follow Jesus. So if you're there and he's walking on earth, it literally means get up, leave everything else, walk with him, know him, obey him, become like him, jump on board to his mission. This is what we're talking about when when they go follow Jesus. And for us today, it's a similar thing. Christ has ascended on high as king of kings. And we, by his spirit, through his word, we follow him and we know Jesus and we, we obey Jesus and we become like Jesus and we jump on board to his mission with all that we have. This is to follow Christ. So sort of a side note here. Did Jesus, did he just call a wicked, good for nothing tax collector to come on to his band of men? Did he just do that? Did he just tell this man to follow him, this wicked man? Can you imagine what this would have looked like to everybody around him? He had probably stolen money from Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. They had to give taxes to this man. And now he jumps on board. What would this have looked like? And Jesus takes a wicked, good-for-nothing man, and he turns him into his own follower. And that's awesome. Christ uses, Christ takes wicked, dirty, low down people to become his disciples. And that should be awesome. You know, people like us, he does that for them. Now, how did Levi respond to the command of Jesus? And this is where we see that Levi was obsessed with him. How did Levi respond to Jesus? And this is where we see that Levi is obsessed with him. In Mark two fourteen, we see it. He arose and followed him. Luke 5, 28 says he left all, rose up, and followed him. This man left his prosperous tax franchise. He would have no no job to come back to. This almost seems like more of a sacrifice than Peter and Andrew and James and John. They left their fishing to go after Christ. But they could always go back to fishing. But what about this guy? He'd have nothing to go back to. He leaves this franchise, and it gets filled because it's a lucrative business. Okay, so right here, he leaves all Jesus. I'm excuse me. Levi is obsessed with Jesus, and he leaves everything. There's nothing in his There's nothing in his mind that should hold him back. He counts Jesus of worthy of following, even though he might lose a prosperous position at his job. You know what this sounds like? Psalm eighty four ten. Sounds like that. I would rather be a lowly doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather be there in the house of my God, even if I'm a lowly doorkeeper, than to dwell in the tents, the luxurious tents, the fancy tents of the wicked. I'd rather be with God in his house than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now, Let me mention another part of this. When you think about Levi's response, let me mention a very important part of Levi's response to Jesus when Jesus says, follow me. He left all, he rose up, and he followed Jesus, how? With great joy. With great joy. He rises up, leaves it all, and follows Jesus with great joy. He didn't just grit his teeth and say, all right, I guess I better do it because that guy's like casting demons out. I better follow him. He didn't do that. It was with great joy that he left all and followed Jesus. He was joyfully obsessed with Jesus. And how do I know that? Because right after it says he left all and followed him, I want you to listen to the account in Luke chapter 5. It says this. And it says here that the next scene is Jesus is in Levi's house and a bunch of people are showing up. Listen to how it says in Luke 5, 29. Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. So he follows Jesus. And how do I know he did it with great joy? Because he follows Jesus. And the next scene you say he's throwing a party in honor of Jesus in his own house. It's called a great feast. Literally means in Greek, a mega banquet. He throws a mega banquet for Jesus right after he starts to follow him. And this, this means he is joyfully obsessed with Jesus, which reminds me of an old wise saying. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he covered up. And in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Only this kind of following Jesus even makes sense. That you see him in all his glory and all his value and you say, I want him and I'll leave everything else to get him. And that's the only kind of following Jesus that makes sense. Since I really I think we need to beware of dishonoring Jesus by saying things like this imagine in a very sad way almost in a sad way you say something like this man I've really made a sacrifice I left all my old friends and left my old lifestyle and you say it kind of sadly that's dishonoring to Jesus he's greater than your friends He's greater than everything you've ever had in your old life. And you leave all with joy and you follow him. Or imagine, don't dishonor Jesus. Imagine you say something arrogantly. It's just arrogant. Like, I made a great sacrifice. I gave up my hobbies. I gave up my stuff. I gave up my whatever. And it's this arrogant presentation. Don't do that. He's better than every hobby you ever had. He's better than everything that you left. Christ Jesus is more glorious than everything that you, that you had to leave, okay? Now listen to me. I want you to think about something. There's a guy named David Livingstone. Anybody ever heard of, heard of him? David Livingstone. I want you to consider this man's perspective, okay? He's a, he was a Scottish brother from the 1800s, okay? David Livingstone. Now he, this is what he did. He traveled in the, he, he left a bunch of comforts at home, bunch of comforts. And he went to Africa to this rough, dangerous terrain. And he was going there to map things out for the advancement of the gospel. Okay. It's David Livingstone. And people would say things to him like, uh, man, you made such a sacrifice. Look at you, you left your comforts and you took on all this hardship. You just made a sacrifice. And this is David Livingstone's uh, response to that. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity? The consciousness of doing good? Peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view. It was such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. It is a privilege. Anxiety sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause. It might cause us the the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing, nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. This is him. I never made a sacrifice. David Livingstone was joyfully obsessed with Jesus. So when he leaves all his comforts at home, he says, I didn't make any sacrifice because I got Christ. David Livingstone was joyfully obsessed with Jesus and his mission. So that when he faces all the hardship and all the sickness and everything that that he encountered there, he says, I never made a sacrifice. I got Christ and I got to serve him. And this is the picture of Levi, he leaves all and follows Jesus. Have you experienced that? Have you joyfully forsaken all and followed Christ? Is that you? Now, let's go to the next heading. The Pharisees and their objection. Let's look at verse 16. Listen to verse 16. Look at the Pharisees and what is their objection? And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Excuse me, I never timed those water breaks, right? Um, so, the, so I want you to think for a second. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Pharisees right here? This is the first mention in Mark of these people called the Pharisees. They're considered the devout ones. The word Pharisees literally means the separatist or the separated ones. These would be the most Bible devoted sect in Israel. The scribes and Pharisees, they were recognized Bible scholars of their day. And they knew this about themselves, which produced a spiritual arrogance in these people. In fact, Jesus looked at Jesus speaking about them in Matthew 23 says they love to be called rabbi, rabbi, which means teacher, teacher. They just love that. They just had a spiritual arrogance about themselves. I heard one person say they could strut sitting down. <laughs> but this is who these people were. They're arrogant people that think highly of themselves. Now, what is it that they hate about Jesus? What do they hate about Jesus? I want you to think about this. What do the Pharisees here hate about Jesus? They hate it that he is spending time with the raff of society. These sinners and these tax collectors. So I want you to notice something. The Pharisees, and think, because we're about to apply this to all of us here, okay? The Pharisees thought that godly men ought not to associate with sinners and tax collectors. Godly men ought not to associate with those, sort, those sorts of people. You see, the Pharisees, they measured their holiness... Or they measure their godliness by what? By what I don't associate with. They measure their godliness by what I don't do and who I don't associate with. And yet they had no heart to go to these sinners and tax collectors and turn them to God. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to our church culture that defines its holiness and its godliness by I don't associate with them and I don't associate with those places and I don't do that and I don't do that. And yet, I've never went after a sinner and tried to win them to Christ and call them to repentance. Maybe are not as far away as the Pharisees as we tend to think. To better understand the Pharisees, let me just mention a few different places in the Scriptures. Luke chapter 7, speaking about the Pharisees, okay? Here, it just gives you a good picture. Luke chapter 7, a woman... A sinful, she was known as a sinner, a harlot. And she comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 7 while Jesus is in a Pharisee's house. And she's just weeping. She's broken over her sin. Her tears are hitting Jesus' feet. And guess what the only thing the Pharisees can say is? Here's what they say. They say, this man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. This is the type we're talking about. No joy over this woman who, who's been, who's been pulled out of darkness into the light. Instead, I can't believe he's allowing that sinner to touch him. Well, what about Luke chapter 15? In Luke chapter 15, in response to the complaining of the Pharisees, Jesus gives three parables. The lost sheep, lost coin, and the prodigal son. Okay, so he's given those three parables in response to the, tax, to the sinners complaining. Listen, listen to Luke 15, verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Him, to hear Him, to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. Listen to the Pharisees just complaining, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what does Jesus do? This gives you a good picture of who they are. Jesus gives them a parable, a parable of a lost sheep, where a man leaves the 99 to go get the one. And after he gives that parable, he makes a real clear distinction about what's going on with them. He says, you are not heavenly because when that one is turned back, angels start rejoicing in heaven and you're complaining because I'm spending time with them. You see the difference? This is the kind of people we're talking about. Same thing with the lost coin. Same thing with the prodigal son. He compares them to the older brother who instead of being glad that the dead has been brought to life, instead of that, they're complaining. And they're saying, what about me? I've been doing good, and what have I got? See that? They thought themselves to be good people, and they despised others, sinners and tax collectors. Another another place in the scripture that shows you something about the Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Luke 18, verse 9 through 14 teaches about the Pharisees. Um, You've got uh, Jesus. Let me read verse 9. Also, Jesus spoke this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Okay, put that. Who's he speaking about? People who trust in themselves they're righteous and they despise others. And then he gives this parable. And in the parable he shows you a Pharisee and a tax collector. It may be that Levi is the inspiration for this parable. But he gives them the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee begins to stand up. And this is the kind of people they are. They arrogantly thank God. Did you know that could happen? You can thank God arrogantly, and they arrogantly thank God. This is what he says. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust, adulterers, and even as this tax collector. He says, thank you, I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not like these men. You see the kind of people we're talking about here? These are men that think they're righteous in and of themselves, and they despise others. They have judged their holiness by what they don't associate with but they have no heart to reach the lost. Now their objection, what is their objection to Jesus? Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? That's the objection, right? Why, are, why is Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors? They, again, they judge their godliness by who they did not associate with. They were not like C.T. Stud. I'll give you a quote from C.T. Stud that I've quoted here before. I love it. He said this, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Yes. He's not, the Pharisees are not like this man. Okay. They had a false holiness, a false holiness that did not lead them to want others to be holy as well. They could see people sin. They could diagnose their sin, but they had no inclination whatsoever to help them in their sin. They were not like William Booth. You know who William Booth is? He's a guy from London. He's an evangelist in London in the 1800s. Okay, and I had this, I'm not gonna read this. I had a story. I'm not gonna read it. I don't have time to read the story. But pretty much, he wanted to go to the the worst of the worst, the streets of London, and preach the gospel in this place where where drunkenness was rampant. Many other vices were just rampant. And he wanted to go to these places, but he had his own Pharisees in his life. And these Pharisees were people of his own denomination who said, hey, someone of your caliber and of your intellect, you should stay here with the the upper class, do whatever. Well... You know, he denied that and he went to the streets and he preached the gospel. And here's a famous quote from him. He said, go straight for souls and go for the worst. Go straight for souls and go for the worst. And the Pharisees were not like this man. The Pharisees had a version of holiness that just led them to stay away from things. Don't associate with sinners and tax collectors, but nothing in them to go win lost souls or to turn people to God or turn people to Jesus. How different is that from Jesus? That's their version of holiness, but Jesus is the holy one. And we see him right here. What's he doing? He's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and he's calling them to repentance. You see how different he is than them? Okay, let's go to the next heading. The physician and his objective. I'm going to read verse 17. The physician, Jesus, and his objective. What's his objective? Verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's understand this verse. First, Jesus, he gives an analogy. Okay. He says, those who are well, that's healthy people. They don't need a physician. They don't need a doctor. Sick people need doctors. So he gives this analogy case okay, picture. And then he applies it. He says, I Jesus is the physician, the doctor in this parable. I did not come to call the righteous. That's the healthy, the well, that don't need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous. He's talking about the Pharisees there. Not that they actually are righteous, but they sure think they're righteous in and of themselves. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the sick people. Gives a parable, then he explains it. The sinners are the sick people. He says, "I I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, I know some of your versions don't say repentance in that particular verse. But if you go, if you look at the other accounts in the Gospels where this is used, he does say call sinners to repentance in the other in in Matthew and in Luke. So you can go look at that on your own. So who is the physician? Jesus is the physician. And the picture here is all are horribly infected with a sickness called sin. And Jesus is the divine doctor that can cure your soul. And this is the picture. Now, how does this physician, Jesus, how does he heal the sick? Does he give you medicine? Does that help you? Pills, medicine? No, they won't cure your soul. Does he do surgery on you? No. There's no surgery that's that's great enough to cure your soul. It won't work. So how does this great physician come after healing the sick? What does he do? Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 5. By his stripes... We are healed. Do you hear it? By his stripes. What is this? How does this doctor heal? Him? By his stripes, we are healed. When we think about a doctor, we think about us going to these doctors for our sicknesses and we enter into their busy schedules and yet you see this doctor, this physician, he comes to us to heal the sick. He comes to sinners and tax collectors. He comes to them and gets in their environment and calls them to repentance. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose wounds we, you were healed. By whose wounds. So how does this doctor heal? Through his wounds, through His death on the cross for your sins. And this is how He heals. Now, This analogy, let me say this kind of a side note, this analogy that Jesus uses. So he's using this analogy that he gives of the doctor who wants to heal sick people to show the Pharisees, the stupidity of their objection. Okay. What I mean by that, what I mean is imagine these Pharisees that he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners and listen, how dumb Jesus makes their objection sound. They say, why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus says, they're sick. And I'm a doctor. They're sick. It just, it just, he indicts their cold-heartedness towards lost people, towards sinners and tax collectors. He just comes against that and he rebukes it. He says, these people are sick and you don't even see it that way. And I'm a doctor and I can heal their soul. So that's meant to, it's meant to show how ridiculous their objection is. Okay, so what, what was their objection? Excuse me, what was Jesus' objective that's why I get for alliterating things. <laughs> what was Jesus' objective here? Why did he come? Why did Jesus come according to this verse? Okay. 2.17 says he came to call sinners to repentance. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. This is a purpose statement. Now, there's, there's other purpose statements throughout Mark. Let me give you some examples. Mark one thirty eight. Jesus says this. Mark one thirty eight. Let us go into the next towns that I might preach there also. Because for this purpose, for this purpose, I have come forth. Why? What's the purpose statement? What's the objective? I came to preach the gospel. He's got eternal souls in view. Jesus has eternal souls in view. But what about Mark 10:45? Mark 10:45, listen to this. The Son of Man did not come to be served. Why'd he come? To serve and to give his life, to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus and his purpose has eternal souls in view. And it's the same thing right here. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. He has eternal souls in view. Jesus is not an isolated monk. He went to the spiritually sick people as a physician, as a doctor to the sick. He went to the worst of the worst to call them to repentance. This is Jesus. Now, I want you to notice he's with these sinners Okay? And he's not just hanging out with them. Not just doing that. And he's not just dumping off information. We've talked about this some when we think about preaching the gospel. He's not just dumping off information. But he's with them and he's calling them to repentance. Have you ever thought that way? Think about your own life. Start applying it before we even get to the application. He thought about that. Spending time with lost people to call them to repentance. And that's what he's doing. Now many people think about calling people to repentance, they think that sounds mean or judgmental or there's some sort of just hatred or something. Like calling to repentance just sounds ugly, you know? But I want you to see this. So when Jesus, he says he's calling them to repentance. And what is the analogy that he uses? A doctor trying to help sick people. Do you see that? This is changing what you think. You, You are called. Okay, we'll get to this, this in a minute. To call people to repentance. And the picture here is not something that's mean. The picture here is something that's a doctor trying to heal, trying to help sick people. And that's the picture we have in chapter 2, verse 17. Now, let me give you a quick side note, just because I love this. With all this in view, I want you to think about this. When you, when you read, we're not going to flip there, but Matthew eleven nineteen. 19. When you read Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, you see uh, one of the derogatory names that Jesus's opponents gave to him. So Jesus' opponents give him a derogatory name. And you know what it is? Friend of sinners. <laughs> and I lo- I love this about Christ. That here's his opponents over here grouped up. What, what can we call them? We're gonna call friend of sinners. And you're just like, come on man, It's a good name, right? If you know that you're a sinner, and he's a friend of sinners, you say, praise God. He while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. This is a good thing. So here we got Jesus calling them to repentance. So what was he calling them to? He was calling these people to realize, realize their sin sickness, to hate their sin sickness, to turn from their sin sickness to the only doctor that could cure them. Christ Jesus, who laid down his life for their sins. He's calling them to repentance. Now, what would it look like in light of what we're seeing right here? What would it look like in this description of repentance compared to a doctor healing the sick? What would it look like for someone to repent? What would that look like? What's the description tell us here? It's to realize that they are sick with sin. If you don't realize your own sickness, you don't feel that you have a need for a doctor. And right here we're seeing they need to realize their sickness. And all sinners must, upon realizing their sickness, hate their sin and seek deliverance from it. But in their sickness... Home remedies will not work. Your only hope is a doctor who can cure you, a doctor who can cure your soul. All sinners cannot just turn from their sickness to their own home remedies, it won't work. They must turn to Jesus, who took the sinner's sickness onto himself and he died for them. He took the sinner's sickness onto himself and he died for their sin. And he rose up from the grave and he lives forevermore as the great physician who heals all lost people who come to him in repentance and faith. And this is what it would look like for them to repent. Now, quick thought uh, before we get into the application, quick thought. As I said earlier, Jesus is placing an indictment on these people okay, for their cold heartedness. They're cause so cold hearted toward these sinners. And so they ask him, why are, you, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? And his response is, they're sick. And I'm a doctor. I didn't come to call a righteous, but sinners to repentance. He's like a doctor trying to heal sick people. And that's the indictment. It would make them feel very cold hearted towards sicknesses. Do you see that? So the question. This is before we even get into application. The question is, do you need the same rebuke? The cold-heartedness towards sinners. Don't you see that they're sick and they're dying? Don't you see that? Don't you see that you know of a doctor who can heal them? And do you need the same indictment? We ought to be very, very glad that Jesus is not like these cold-hearted people because we are sinners. We are wicked tax collectors and sinners who we are. And we ought to be very glad that Christ Jesus is not like these these people. He's full of compassion and love. He reaches out to the sick and gives them spiritual health. This is what he does. All right, application. Quick on the application here, okay? I got two main points, two main things. I want to take this and apply it to us, okay? Application number one. What does this passage teach us about the gospel? Hear me out here. What is this passage? This is an application in our thinking. What does this passage teach us about the gospel? And here's one glorious reminder from this passage. This teaches us that Jesus came. Why? To save sinners. Like a doctor healing sick people, Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus did not come just to give an example to us of how to live. He didn't come just to give us an example of how to live. If this would have been his main accomplishment, and we see Jesus giving us an example of how to live, we would still all go to hell. Why? Because we would see his example, and we could not live up to it. His main purpose was not to give us an example. Instead, Jesus came to die for the ungodly. He came as a doctor to heal the sick. And doctors do not prance around in front of sick people to show them an example of somebody healthy. That's not what they do. They find cures. They heal people, okay? And this is the main reason he came. Right, Brett? Okay. This passage, this passage, we're still talking about the gospel here. This passage is a needed reminder to us that Jesus did not come to call the righteous. He did not come to call the righteous. Listen to Jesus. I did not come to call the righteous. What does that mean? Now, he's obviously not saying that the Pharisees are righteous. And, you know, you guys are so good, you don't need me. You don't need a savior. You don't need salvation. That's not what he's saying, right? Because Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none righteous on this earth. So what's he saying? saying, He's speaking about these people. He did not come to call the righteous. And when he says righteous and he's applying it to the Pharisees, he's meaning these people think that they are righteous in and of themselves. They feel like they're good people. They don't feel like they're bad people. They don't feel like they need a savior. They don't feel like they need a doctor, that they're sick and they need a doctor. This is who the Pharisees were. And that's a scary place to be. It is a horrible, I think that they had even though they're called well in this parable or righteous they had a worse sickness a more horrible sickness than the sinners themselves why because they're sick and they're dying and yet they feel so healthy they feel fine they don't feel bad okay and this is a horrible Horrible sickness to have. Imagine it. The doctor comes to you, Christ Jesus, who dies for your sin, and he wants to help you, and you spit in his face, and you're offended that he would even think that you're the one that's sick, or that's a sinner. It's a horrible sickness to have. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. We need Christ. So you need to think about that. And don't just go with the southern lingo. You know, the southern lingo here is, you know, most everybody in this room would say, Yeah, I'm a sinner. But I'm not talking about admitting to being a theoretical sinner. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit who, who John 16:8 convicts the world of sin. That's what he does. Have you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit over your sin and turned to Christ? That's what I mean by that. Last part here on the gospel. Uh, this passage is a wonderful reminder to us that Jesus is... is different, or the difference between Jesus and all other religions in this world. Every other religion in this world says what? Be good, try your best, do the best you can, everything's going to be okay. Just do your best. Just, just try real hard and everything is going to be okay. And right here, Jesus says, if people have that mindset, I did not come to call them. I did not come to call the righteous. But instead, Jesus makes it clear that every person is sick and in need of a doctor. Instead, instead of being good, man is sinful. Man is very sinful. And there's nothing good in man. Man is sinful. And man's goodness, any amount of goodness that man might have, is just like perfume on a corpse. Doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't help you. And that only Jesus, he makes it clear, only Jesus can save. He's the Savior. He's the great physician that can heal us. Application number two. All right. What does this passage teach us about the Great Commission? What does this passage teach? Or the way it says it on your sheet is, how does this passage challenge us concerning the Great Commission? I want you to see this. In this passage, we see Jesus going to the tax collectors and sinners. We see Jesus. Everybody Everybody else around him may have been uncomfortable. Okay? Even his own disciples may have been very uncomfortable to be in this house of people of harlots and tax collectors and sinners. And yet Jesus, we see him going into this place. He went to them and he called them to repentance. The great commission is to make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, all the sinners, make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The great commission is not huddle up together and just perpetually disciple each other. It's not the Great Commission, okay? Now understand there may be discipleship relationships going down in here and there ought to be. and There ought to be a lot of them. I praise God for that. But my point is to say don't get this mindset that everything's inward. He's, he's going to the sinners and the tax collectors. We must go to the lost and the dying like the doctor to a sick person. We must go to the lost and sinful people in our neighborhoods. We must go to the lost sinners in our city. We must go to the lost unreached sinners in the nations. The example that Christ gives right here is one who spent time with the worst of the worst to call them to repentance. The example of Christ. Let me give you another quick purpose statement of Jesus. It's Luke 19.10, a purpose statement of Jesus. Listen to what he says. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man has come. To seek the lost. In order to save the lost, you must seek the lost to save the lost. Could this be written as a purpose statement over your life? He spends his life seeking the lost to save the lost, or she spends her life seeking the lost sinners to save them. Or think about your neighborhood. Think about your neighborhood, your apartment complex, wherever you are. Think about that. Are you seeking the lost there? Are you like your savior there who gets with the sinners and tax collectors and calls them to repentance? What about here in Jackson? What about in the surrounding areas of Jackson? Have you spent time thinking through this? How can I get around lost people so I can call them to repentance? Have you thought about this? Have you spent time thinking about this? How can you apply William Booth's quote, William Booth's advice, go for souls and go for the worst. How can you apply that to your life here? How can you do that? Have you fallen? Have you fallen into the mundane life of the Christian monk? And if so, I'm bidding you to, to come into an exhilarating life of calling people to repentance, of 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 taking people out of darkness into light. The mundane life of a Christian monk is boring. And you got to fill up your life with all these other lesser pleasures instead of Christ Himself and His mission. It's boring. Very boring. But the seeker of the lost fights to penetrate darkness with the light of the gospel. That is not boring. The mundane life of the Christian monk is a life of disobedience. But the seeker of the lost obeys the captain of his salvation when he says, preach the word in season and out of season. The mundane life of a Christian monk is marked by cruel neglect. Cruel neglect of sick and dying people. But the seeker of the lost finds the sick and finds the dying and with compassion gives them the only cure for their soul, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. Try to make some applications here. I'm sure the Pharisees were very willing to be intellectual and maybe even theological, intellectual, theological people, and yet they were unwilling to get close to tax collectors and sinners. You think about that for a minute? What about you? Are you wide open to be intellectual? you wide open to be theological, and yet you can't think of the last time you went after the lost people to call them to Christ. And I think this is where the Pharisees were. This, this cannot be. What do you think Jesus would say to the intellectualism of our day that loves to talk theology but never talks to sinners? What do you think he would say to that? Maybe he would say, lift up your eyes. Look at the harvest. It's white for harvest. Look at it. In this passage, I want you to think about this quickly, okay? We're almost there. Jesus was extremely intentional and you see it in this passage. Don't you think about the intentionality of Jesus here, okay? He's intentional. We see him in this passage, in verse 13. He's in an outdoor setting and he's preaching to the multitudes, preaching the gospel. Then we see him go to an individual and actually call him to follow him. And then we see him in these people's house. He's in different settings. He's in these, these sinners' house uh, and, and all the all his lost buddies come together and he's calling them to repentance. Very intentional. What about you? Are you intentional about getting around lost people? Lost, sick, and dying people. And when you're around them, are you intentional about preaching the gospel? Are you intentional about sharing and co- sharing the gospel with them and calling them to Christ? They need it. May we never be those that just passively go through life while people slip off into hell over and over again. May we never be that way. Paul said this. He said, by all means, I might save some. Paul said that. He said, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Do you hear that? By all means save some. Are you intentional about that? Taking all the means that God has given to you. What are they? What are the means that God has blessed you with? And using them to call people to Christ. Like a doctor. You know the doctor. and Introducing sick people and dying people to the doctor. Let me give you an example of a means. Your home. Get real practical. Your home. Your apartment. Whatever. Your home. Your apartment. The place for you, where you live. Are you intentional about using this means to save the lost? And I'll tell you why I use this. And we'll about close it down. Because right here you see Jesus call this man to follow him, and this new convert to Christ, the first thing he does is he, he has Jesus to do his home, and he invites all his lost buddies, and he invites them in to introduce them to Christ, using his home intentionally to win souls. Think about that. Now here's what we're about to do. Let me. I'll read one more verse to you. Luke fourteen twenty one. I had a lot to share with you Luke 14, but I don't have time. Luke 14, 21 says this. Go out quickly. Just listen to this. Go out quickly into the streets. Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said to the master, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there's room. Then the master said to that servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. Now, here's what we're about to do. I know I said we we're going to pray afterwards, but so we're about to spend some time praying together corporately. Um, I want to guide this just slightly, okay? When we start praying right now, we're going to pray. Anybody's welcome to pray during this time, Okay. And I want to just spend some time praying, and I'll change our directions in just a minute. We're not going to be, you know, I'll give us a little bit of time to pray, and then I'm going to change our directions. But let's pray, okay, just to worship King Jesus. This passage is meant to exalt Jesus. So let's just pray and worship King Jesus, that He's the Savior of sinners. He's the great physician. And every other way, let's just spend time praying. And as I said, anyone's welcome to pray. Be sure you pray loud enough so that so that the others around you can hear and amen you. And we're going to spend time praying in that direction, okay?